You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. For the second time this week, we at the House of Literature are honored to welcome Arunati Roy to our stage. Yesterday, we heard Roy talk about her new impressive novel, The Ministry of Outmost Happiness. And today, Roy will expand on the borders between politics and art in her own writing. My name is Lynn Rottem, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And I have the immense honor to welcome you to this lecture, which is the last of three lectures about the future of literature, which marks the House of Literature's 10 years anniversary. And some of the questions we asked very pretentiously in this uh, text was, what power does literature have? In what way does it give space and voice to those who are not being heard? Can literature address the human condition and the future of humankind? Big questions, but I dare say that Roy's body of work addresses them all. Through her novels and a number of essays, in a truly interdisciplinary manner, with extensive knowledge and a human warmth, Roy has explored the human condition in refreshing and astonishing ways, and tackled issues such as pollution, human rights abuses, religious nationalism, and social inequality. Roy's works give us, her readers, a better understanding of the world we live in, the bodies we inhabit, and the spaces and places we belong. So we at the House of Literature could think of no one better to share some of her thoughts about the human condition and literature today and tomorrow. And after the lecture, Roy will take some questions from the audience. So you can use this opportunity during her talk to think about what you want her to collaborate on. Uh, and now, please give a warm welcome to Arundhati Roy. Thank you very much. And... Um, I'm a little bit more worried today than I was yesterday because I'm not sure <laughs> that I can really answer all these very uh, serious questions. I'm not even going to try to, actually. Because as, as we... I, I don't know, uh, I don't even know like how many of you were here yesterday. and So I'm, I'm sorry if I repeat myself sometimes. But uh, yesterday we did have a little discussion about... Uh, I mean, before we can discuss uh, what literature can do, we really need to ask ourselves what literature is. And um, quite often, people say that, call me a writer-activist, which, as I said yesterday, uh, is a bit like saying I'm a sofa bed. Because people seem to assume that Literature is something quite separate from, from the 20 years of writing that I have done uh, inside India about what's going on there, being involved with the arguments, with the fights, taking the consequences of all the things that are said and done there. And to me, uh, the real question is, what has become of literature? Why have we reduced the meaning of a writer to a person who, who writes novels or who lives somewhere between literary festivals and bestseller lists and so on. And anyone who, any work that engages directly with what is happening around them is now got a separate profession, which is activism, which reduces both activism as well as writing. So, so the first argument to me is, Really, why are we reducing the meaning of being a writer in the world? Uh, so so uh, I, I, I was trying to think to myself, how am I to really speak about the range of things that 
uh, to me constitute literature, to me in the part of the world that I live in. And how, how could I explain it to you in, in a way that, um, you know, that isn't too elaborate? So I thought what I would do is to just um, really try and tell you the story of, of, uh, of those 20 years uh, which started with the God of Small Things and now has culminated in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness and, and what that journey was like, reading a few things from the, the books of essays that I've written. Really, I often say that I've written uh, two novels and then there were five books which just were never intended to be... Uh, you know, they were always sort of urgent interventions in something that was happening which grew into a collection of five political essays. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to start with, the, with a small paragraph from The God of Small Things, which will then lead me to how I came to write everything else, and then we can talk about anything you want to ask me about. So, uh, <clears throat> this is just towards the end of the first chapter of The God of Small Things. In a purely practical sense, it would probably be correct to say that it all began when Sophie Moll came to Imanum. Perhaps it's true that things can change in a day, that a few dozen hours can affect the outcome of whole lifetimes, and that when they do those few dozen hours, like the salvaged remains of a burned house, the charred clock, the singed photograph, the scorched furniture, must be resurrected from the ruins and examined, preserved, accounted for. Little events, ordinary things, smashed and reconstituted, imbued with new meaning, suddenly they become the bleached bones of a story. Still to say that it all began when Sophie Moll came to Imanum is only one way of looking at it. Equally, it could be argued that it actually began thousands of years ago, long before the Marxists came, before the British took Malabar, before the Dutch ascendancy, before Vasco da Gama arrived, before the Zamorin's conquest of Calicut, before three purple-robed Syrian bishops murdered by the Portuguese were found floating in the sea with coiled sea serpents rising on their chests and oysters knotted in their tangled beards. It could be argued that it began long before Christianity arrived in a boat and seeped into Kerala like tea from a tea bag. That it really began in the days when the love laws were made, the laws that lay down who should be loved and how, and how much. So, when this book was published, of course, uh, I mean, everybody knows the story of how it became successful and the Booker Prize and so on. But in Kerala, uh, because the love laws is a reference to the caste system, and the book refers and ends with, with a, a, a physical love between a woman who comes from an upper-caste Syrian Christian family and a Dalit, who's an untouchable. So, um, and it, it also talks quite extensively about how, how the communists in India have never really addressed caste, which is today even the motor that runs Indian society. The most brutal system of social hierarchy that perhaps human society has invented and continues to modernize itself in ways which retain that inequality. But I'm going to come to that at the end of the talk. But when this book came out, uh, uh, you know, the first thing that happened in Kerala was I was, uh, had a criminal case filed against me for corrupting public morality. And it went on for several years, but... Uh, when the Booker Prize happened, uh, the, the judge, you know, they wanted to claim the prize, but not the book. And so the judge would come out uh, and we would all be ready with our arguments. And he would say, every time this case comes before me, 
I get chest pains. And then you postpone it and kept postponing it for, for several years. But uh, what happened is that this book came out in 1997. And, uh, and I was obviously, uh, in 1997 and 1998, these were the years when, when the new India was on the rise. You know, Soviet communism had been defeated in the bleak mountains of Afghanistan. And India, which had traditionally been a country that was non-aligned, soon became uh, directly aligned and began to call itself the natural ally of the US and Israel. And, um, and uh, in the early 90s, the Indian government, uh, you know, a way I like to explain it is that it opened two locks. One was the lock of an old 14th century mosque that had been locked by the court because it was contested. Hindus said that they wanted to, I mean, Hindu right-wing nationalists said that this was the site of the birth of Lord Ram and we want to demolish this mosque and build a new temple. These are the people who, who are in power today, of course, but who believe that India is a Hindu nation. And the other lock that was opened was the lock of the until then sort of protected market. And it was opened to global capital. So by 1997, you had two kinds of totalitarianism competing in the public sphere. One was the rise of the Hindu right, which started with the demolition in the modern era, anyway, started with the demolition of this old, old mosque in 1992, and the, and the sort of demonization of the Muslim community, and uh, the you know, there was a, the, a man who subsequently became the home minister who traveled around India in a chariot, rousing Hindus to come to gather at the Babri Masjid, the old mosque, and demolish it. And it was demolished in 1992. And the other was this form of economic totalitarianism where labor laws were dismantled, all forms of protection were dismantled. There was the rise of a big, new, aggressive middle class, and equally the, the displacement, the impoverishment, the, the, the despair of millions of underclass who paid the price for this rise. So this was the atmosphere in 97, and, and after I won the Booker, I was on the cover of every magazine, I was now being sort of marketed as the face of this new superpower, nuclear power, no, sorry, new India. And then the right-wing government came to power in 98, just a few months later, and did a series of nuclear tests. And I was now in this position where either, if I, if I said something or I didn't say something, they were both equally political, because to keep quiet would mean that I, I, was, I was willing to be the face of this new aggressive nationalism, this new nuclear nationalism. And uh, so I decided to step off the train. And I wrote the first of this series of political essays, which was called The End of Imagination. So the essay was not really... Uh, 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 an essay just about the consequences of nuclear war or about how it endangered the whole subcontinent and the whole world, really, with the whole issue of Kashmir boiling between India and Pakistan. It was more an essay about what does having these nuclear weapons do to our imagination? And what actually happened after those nuclear tests is that a new form of public discourse became possible. A new, ugly, bigoted form of public conversation where openly India was now heading towards being a Hindu nation at the cost of its many minorities. It became possible to say things that were, not, were, were said in private but not in public. But now the whole thing came out in public. And uh, so I, I was, uh, I, I mean, I, this essay was written in uh, 1998. 
And when I uh, when I read it now, I I see that you know it is it is true that that was the time that was the time when this journey began to what is now a proto-fascist country where people are openly being lynched on the streets, ghettoized, and moved into. Uh, you know, at, to the push down to the bottom of the uh, economic ladder. But I'm just going to read uh, uh, just a little bit from the end of imagination. So this is in 1998. Last year, I was one of the items being paraded in the media's end-of-the-year National Pride Parade. Among others, much to my mortification, were a bomb maker and an international beauty queen. Each time a beaming person stopped me on the street and said, you've made India proud, referring to the prize I won, not the book I wrote, I felt a little uneasy. It frightened me then and it terrifies me now because I know how easily that swell, that tide of emotion can turn against me. Perhaps the time for that has come. I'm going to step out from under the twinkling lights and say, what's on my mind. It's this, if protesting against having a nuclear bomb implanted in my brain is anti-Hindu and anti-national, then I secede. I hereby de declare myself an independent mobile republic. I'm a citizen of the earth. I own no territory. I have no flag. My policies are simple. I'm willing to sign any nuclear non-proliferation treaty or nuclear test ban treaty that's going. Immigrants are welcome. You can help me design our flag. My world has died and I write to mourn its passing. Admittedly, it was a flawed world, an unviable world, a scarred and wounded world. It was a world that I myself have criticized unsparingly, but only because I loved it. It didn't deserve to die. It didn't deserve to be dismembered. Forgive me, I realize that sentimentality is uncool, but what shall I do with my desolation? I loved it simply because it offered humanity a choice. It was a rock out at sea. It was a stubborn chink of light that insisted that there was a different way of living. It was a functioning possibility, a real option. All that's gone now. India's nuclear tests, the manner in which they were conducted, and the euphoria with which they have been greeted by us is indefensible. To me, it signifies dreadful things. The end of imagination, the end of freedom, actually, because, after all, that's what freedom is, choice. So once, once this essay was published, of course, I became uh, a person who was suspected very deeply by the establishment. And uh, I was most happy to be that person. And, and uh, it, it, it began a journey uh, into, into worlds that, into other worlds where, where writer, where, where, which I felt needed a writer. So, you know, when, 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 when I uh, finished The God of Small Things and when it was published, and it was extremely disturbing and almost traumatic for me to be a writer so celebrated and rewarded and the book selling in the millions, my bank account swelling, and I live in this country where people mostly can't read, can't send their children to school, don't have enough to eat. And, and, and I could see this, this, this huge machine rolling, a new era dawning. So I decided that I wanted to be the writer that, that was not, you know, living in India and interpreting the East to the West. I wanted to write there, for there, travel there, argue there, fight there, and take the consequences there. So, so, and, and quite soon after the 1998 nuclear tests, uh, another big thing happened. And the Supreme Court lifted a, a four-year-long stay on the construction of one of the biggest dams in South Asia. 
a dam on the river called the Narmada. And the struggle of the people in the Narmada Valley was already by then a legendary struggle. It was, it was something that uh, we really, really admired. And I knew that, uh, you know, they had, for, for example, the World Bank was funding that huge dam. It was a 138-meter-high dam, which was going to... And that was just one of the 30 big dams on the river. It was a whole civilization that was going to be submerged. And the costs of these big dams, the, the benefits of these big dams had already been exposed as being ridiculous. But you know, people who construct them, just the construction of the dam itself makes people so much money. So uh, I began to travel in the Narmada Valley to try and understand what this whole story was. And I told myself that, look, if you are a real writer, if you can write The God of Small Things and get millions of people to read it, try writing about irrigation. Try writing about what this whole new um, form of agriculture is, is. Try writing about how a whole ecology is being mechanized so that you're now having rice growing in the desert, importing rice in areas where rice should naturally grow, turning a whole population that lived on the land into people who supply food to the market but don't eat it themselves, where you grow uh, soya where there's no water, you grow, you grow um, crops which you grow cotton in areas where there's no water. So, so can you write about this? This is the challenge. And to me, traveling in the valley, understanding that movement, gave me the most profound political understanding that I ever got. It was the best university I went to. And even today, it is the foundation of what I understand. And I wrote, uh, I wrote a big essay then called The Greater Common Good about that struggle, nonviolent, spectacular, uh, not just about human beings, not just about the millions of people who have been displaced by dams, but about what dams do to the land, what do they do to the culture, the, the, the indigenous uh, populations that live in those forested hills just being pushed out into a market economy. Um, of course, uh, I wrote a lot about it, and again, there was a court case against me, uh, initially uh, for uh, contempt of court. You know, it, it began with judges taking offense because I said that to give an indigenous person who doesn't live in the market economy cash compensa compensation for their land is like paying a Supreme Court judge his salary in fertilizer bags. <laughs> and they didn't like that. And eventually it led, it led to a short jail sentence, but Never mind, but I, but I, I want to read you a part of this essay where, uh, you know, the, the games that are played with who are called project affected. For example, the people who are submerged by the reservoir of the dam are called project affected, but the people who are, uh, uh, are displaced by the canal system are not counted as project affected, and their lives are devastated. And so this is an account of visiting a farmer called Bhaiji Bhai, who loses 17 of his 20 acres of land to the new irrigation system. The last person I met in the valley was Bhaiji Bhai. He's an Adivasi from Undava, one of the first villages where the government began to acquire land for the canal. The canal affects more than 200,000 families, and people have lost wells and trees and had their houses separated from their farms. 23,000 families, let's say 100,000 people, will be, like Bhaiji Bhai, seriously affected. But they don't count as project affected. Like his neighbors in Kevadia colony, Bhaiji Bhai became a pauper overnight. Bhaiji Bhai and his people forced to smile for photographs on government calendars. Bhaiji Bhai and his people denied the grace of rage. 
Baiji Bai and his people squashed like bugs by this country they, were, they are supposed to call their own. It was late evening when I arrived at his house. We sat down on the floor and drank over sweet tea in the dying light. As he spoke, a memory stirred in me a sense of deja vu. I couldn't imagine why. I knew I hadn't met him before, but then I realized what it was. I didn't recognize him, but I remembered his story. I'd seen him in an old documentary film shot more than 10 years ago in the valley. He was frailer now, his beard softened with age, but his story hadn't aged. It was still young and full of passion. It broke my heart, the patience with which he told it. I could tell that he had told it over and over again, hoping, praying, that one day one of the strangers passing through Undava would turn out to be good luck or God. Bhaiji Bhai, Bhaiji Bhai, when will you get angry? When will you stop waiting? When will you say, that's enough, and reach for your weapons, whatever they may be? When will you show us the whole of your resonant, terrifying, invincible strength? When will you break the faith? Will you break the faith, or will you let it break you? To slow a beast, you break its limbs. To slow a nation, you break its people. You rob them of volition. You demonstrate your absolute command over their destiny. You make it clear that ultimately it falls to you to decide who lives, who dies, who prospers, who doesn't. To exhibit your capability, you show off all that you can do and how easily you can do it. How easily you could press a button and annihilate the earth. How you can start a war or sue for peace. How you can snatch a river away from one and gift it to another. How you can green a desert or fell a forest and plant one somewhere else. You use caprice to fracture a people's faith in ancient things. Earth, forest, water, air. Once that's done, what do they have left? Only you. They will turn to you because you're all they have. They will love you even while they despise you. They will trust you even though they know you well. They will vote for you even as you squeeze the very breath from their bodies. They will drink what you give them to drink. They will breathe what you give them to breathe. They will live where you dump their belongings. They have to. What else can they do? There's no higher court of redress. You're their mother and their father. You're the judge and the jury. You're the word. You're God. Power is fortified not just by what it destroys, but also by what it creates. Not just by what it takes, but also by what it gives. And powerlessness reaffirmed not just by the helplessness of those who have lost, but also by the gratitude of those who have or think they have gained. Big dams are to a nation's development what nuclear bombs are to its military arsenal. They are both weapons of mass destruction. They are both weapons governments use to control their own people, both 20th century emblems that mark a point in time when human intelligence has outstripped its own instinct for survival. They are both malignant indications of a civilization turning upon itself. They represent the severing of the link, not just the link, the understanding between human beings and the planet they live on. They scramble the intelligence that connects eggs to hens, milk to cows, food to forests, water to rivers, air to life, and the earth to human existence. So this was written in 1999, and now it's 2017. The struggle has been totally dismembered. On the 17th of October, that means just a few days ago, the Prime Minister of India gave himself a birthday present, which was that on the day of his birthday, he inaugurated the closing of the final gates of the dam, which, which, uh, which now inundates thousands of poor people. And the water of that dam, which was supposed to, of course, go to other poor people, now goes to golf clubs, sugar farmers, five-star hotels. And it's not a metaphoric image of this man. It is a literal image of everything that he stands for. 
and uh, this was a great uh, present for himself. So, so this was the one story of the development, and I'll come to how this nonviolent struggle has now turned into not the struggle in the dam, but around those areas now, there is a civil war taking place. People have taken to arms. And uh, later on, I'll read uh, an account of, of, of weeks I spent with the guerrilla armies inside the forest. But uh, so here we are in 1999, and then we come to 9-11, 2001, um, uh, when 9-11 happened, it came as a great gift to the Hindu right. It came, uh, the, the, this, this, um, this organization called the RSS, which is a cultural guild to which Narendra Modi and all his senior ministers belong, was set up in 1925, and since then has been working towards the idea of the Hindu nation, the idea of rewriting the constitution of India, which calls itself a socialist and secular republic, to a changing it to a Hindu nation. And uh, its ideologues have openly written before, inspired by European fascism, openly written saying that the Muslims of India are like the Jews of Germany. And, you know, they have their, the RSS is the most powerful organization in India today. It has hundreds of thousands of volunteers and all of that. But how did it, how did its journey to power begin? So in, in as soon as 9-11 happened, quickly the chessmen were put into place. September 11th, 2001, 9-11 happened. In October, a politician that nobody had really heard of was put into office unelected by the, the ruling party. His name was Narendra Modi, and he was installed as the chief minister of Gujarat. And between 2000, in October 2001, this happened. Meanwhile, there had already been attacks on Christians in districts in Gujarat, churches burnt. For the RSS, Christians, Muslims, and communists are their stated enemies. So in, uh, in February 2002, which is just a few months after he came to office, a, a train was set on fire in a, sta in, a, in, a, in a station called Godhra, in the state of Gujarat, of which Modi was the chief minister and 69 Hindu pilgrims were brutally burned to death. Up to today, nobody knows who set those, that train on fire, but of course, immediately it was announced that Muslim terrorists have burnt Hindu pilgrims, and the bodies of the burnt pilgrims were bought, brought to the capital city of Gujarat and put on display, and then a pogrom began. People had, people had lists of Muslim houses, Muslim shops, Muslim uh, organizations. And I, I'm going to read to you uh, a description of what happened in 2002 in Gujarat. Within hours of the Godra outrage, a meticulously planned pogrom. This was also written while the massacre was going on. Within hours of the Godra outrage, a meticulously planned pogrom was unleashed against the Muslim community. It was led from the front by the Hindu nationalists, VHP and the Bajrang Dal. Officially, the number of dead is 800. Independent reports put the figure as high as 2,000. More than 150,000 people were driven from their homes and now live in refugee camps. Women were stripped, gang-raped. Parents were bludgeoned to death in front of their children. 240 shrines and 180 mosques were destroyed. In Ahmedabad, the tomb of the great poet Wali Gujarati was demolished. A mob surrounded the house of the former Congress Member of Parliament, Ehsan Jafri. His phone calls to the Director General of Police and the Police Commissioner were ignored. The mobile police vans outside his house did not intervene. 
So a mob of 20,000 gathered around this Ehsan Jafri's house. And uh, he had 60 people approximately taking shelter in the house, hoping that he was such a senior politician that nothing would happen. But when nobody intervened, Ehsan Jafri went down to speak to the mob to ask them to do what they liked with him, but to spare the women and children. He was hacked to death, and all the women were killed, the children were killed, everyone was killed. In fact, uh, when I was in New York recently uh, at the launch of the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, his daughter was in the audience. And uh, across Gujarat, the, there was a deliberate systematic attempt to destroy the economic base of the Muslim community. The leaders of the mob had computer-generated lists marking out Muslim homes, shops, businesses, and even partnerships. They had mobile phones to coordinate the action. They had trucks loaded with thousands of gas cylinders hoarded weeks in advance. While Gujarat burned, the Prime Minister Vajpai was on MTV promoting his new poems. Reports say that cassettes have sold 100,000 copies. It took him more than a month and two vacations in the hills to make it to Gujarat. And when he did, shadowed by the chilling Modi, he gave a speech at a refugee camp. His mouth moved. He tried to express concern, but no real sound emerged except the mocking of the wind whistling through a burned, bloody, broken world. And the next we knew, he was bobbing around in a golf cart, striking business deals in Singapore. The killers still stalk Gujarat streets. So now the Muslim community there and in many places in India is completely ghettoized. And in 19, I mean in 2001, it says here, notice has been given. This is just the beginning. After the Gujarat massacre at its convention in Bangalore, the RSS, the Moral and Cultural Guild of the BJP, of which the Prime Minister, the Home Minister, and the Chief Minister Modi himself are all members, called upon Muslims to earn the goodwill of the majority community. At the meeting of the National Executive of the BJP in Goa, Modi was greeted as a hero. His smoking offer to resign from Chief Minister, the Chief Minister's post was unanimously turned down. In a recent public speech, he compared the events of the last few weeks in Gujarat to Gandhi's Dandi March, both, according to him, significant moments in the struggle for freedom. And in 2013, after being elected four times as chief minister in 2013, he was, of course, nominated by the BJP to become, to be their prime ministerial candidate and won the elections in 2014. And once he won the elections, he took off the saffron, the saffron costume and put on his business suit. And Hindu nationalism and corporate capitalism have since then danced hand in hand. The media owned by all the big corporations, which back Modi said, uh, you know, he's the new development chief minister. He's the person who India should look to to bring it out of poverty. Of course, now you know that the uh, growth rate, whatever that meant, of 7.6 has now gone down. We are living in a country where 300,000 farmers have committed suicide. It has the largest number of malnutrition children in the world, and yet we celebrate ourselves as a, a booming economy. Because yes, parts of it are booming, but parts of it are in utter despair, and now in utter, living in utter terror. So, um, so this, this is the last thing I'm going to read to you, which is, which is a, um, an account of the other form of civil war, the Hindu nationalists lynching people on rumors of eating beef, the, the killings that you hear about every day, the journalist who was shot last week, just the latest in a series of people who have been killed, are all... Uh, people who are who are being hounded for being uh, who are being hounded for being uh, anti-national, as I am. But this is another war which people don't know about, which is actually a war in the forests of central India, where millions of indigenous people live, 
and their lands have been signed over in MOUs to mining corporations. The rivers, the mountains, the forests have all been privatized. And not this was before Modi became prime minister even. The forests were flooded with paramilitary and with vigilante groups who are trying to get the people to move off the land so that the integrated steel plants and the mining can carry on. And so uh, there is a big armed struggle under the banner of the Communist Party Maoists, but 99% of them are indigenous people and 50% of the uh, actual armed guerrillas are women. So uh, I went, uh, I was invited by them uh, to go into the forest and I spent some weeks walking with them through the villages and listening to the stories of what was happening there. And then I came out and wrote an essay called Walking with the Comrades. I just, I'll just read, it's a long essay, I'll just read little bits of it to you. The terse typewritten note slipped under my door in a sealed envelope, confirmed my appointment with India's single biggest internal security challenge. This was what the prime minister called the poorest people in the country, the single biggest security challenge. I'd been waiting for months to hear from them. I had to be at the Ma Danteshwari temple in Dantewara, Chhattisgarh, which is in the forested heart of central India, at any of four given times on two given days. That was to take care of bad weather, punctures, blockades, transport strikes, and sheer bad luck. The note said, the writer should have a camera, a bindi, and a coconut. The meter will have a cap, a Hindi Outlook magazine, and bananas. And the password will be Namaskar Guruji. Namaskar Guruji. I wondered whether the meter and greeter would be expecting a man and whether I should get myself a moustache. There are many ways to describe Dantewada. It's an oxymoron. It's a border town smack in the heart of India. It's the epicenter of a war. It's an upside down, inside out town. In Dantewada, the police wear plain clothes and the rebels wear uniforms. The police wear plain clothes because they're scared of being attacked as policemen. The jail superintendent is in jail. The prisoners are free. 300 of them escaped from the old town jail two years ago. Women who have been raped are in police custody. The rapists give speeches in the bazaar. Across the Indravati River, in the area controlled by the Maoists, is the place the police call Pakistan, which means that they free, feel free to shoot to kill. There, are, there the villages are empty, but the forest is full of people. Children who ought to be in school run wild. In the lovely forest villages, the concrete school buildings have either been blown up and lie in a wee heap, or they are full of policemen. The deadly war that's unfolding in the jungle is a war that the government of India is both proud and shy of. Operation Green Hunt has been proclaimed as well as denied. India's Home Minister and CEO of the war says it does not exist, that it's a media creation, and yet substantial funds have been allocated to it, and tens of thousands of troops are being mobilized for it. Though the theater of war is in the jungles of central India, it will have serious consequences for us all. If ghosts are the lingering spirit of someone or something that has ceased to exist, then perhaps the National Mineral Development Corporation's new four-lane highway crashing through the forest is the opposite of a ghost, perhaps is the harbinger of what is still to come. The antagonists in the forest are disparate and unequal in almost every way, every way. On one side is a massive paramilitary force armed with the money, the firepower, the media, and the hubris of an emerging superpower. On the other, ordinary villagers armed with traditional weapons, backed by a superbly organized, hugely motivated Maoist guerrilla fighting force with an extraordinary and violent history of armed 
rebellion. I arrived at the Ma Danteshwari temple well in time for my appointment, first day, first show. I had my camera, my small coconut, and a powdery red bindi on my forehead. I wondered if someone was watching me and having a laugh. Within minutes, a young boy approached me. He had a cap, a backpack school bag, chipped red nail polish on his fingernails, no Hindi outlook, no bananas. Are you the one who's going in, he asked me. No, Namaskar Guruji. I didn't know what to say. He took out a soggy note from his pocket and handed it to me. It said, Outlook Nahimila. Couldn't find Outlook. <laughs> and the bananas? I asked. I ate them, he said. I got hungry. <laughs> he really was a security threat. His backpack said, Charlie Brown, not your ordinary blockhead. He said his name was Mangtu. I soon learned that Dandakaranya, the forest I was about to enter, was full of people who had many names and fluid identities. It was like balm to me, that idea. How lovely not to be stuck with yourself, to become someone else for a while. We walked to the bus stand, only a few minutes away from the temple. It was already crowded. Things happened quickly. There were two men on motorbikes. There was no conversation, just a glance of acknowledgement, a shifting of body weight, the revving of engines. I had no idea where we were going. We passed the house of the superintendent of police, which I recognized from my last visit. He was a candid man, the superintendent. See, ma'am, frankly speaking, this problem can't be solved by us, police or military. The problem with these tribal people is they don't understand greed. Unless they become greedy, there's no hope for us. I've told my boss to remove the force and instead put a TV in every home. Everything will be automatically sorted out. In no time at all, we were riding out of town. No tail. It was a long ride, three hours by my watch. It ended abruptly in the middle of nowhere on an empty road with forest on either side. Mangtu got off and I did too. The bikes left and I picked up my backpack and followed the small internal security challenge into the forest. It was a beautiful day. The forest floor was a carpet of gold. In a while, we emerged on the white, sandy banks of a broad, flat river. It was obviously monsoon-fed, so now it was more or less a sand flat at the center of a stream, ankle-deep and easy to wade across. Across was Pakistan. Out there, ma'am, the candid policeman had told me, my boys shoot to kill. I remember that as we began to cross. I saw us in a policeman's rifle sights, tiny figures in a landscape, easy to pick off. But Mangtu seemed quite unconcerned, and I took my cue from him. And so I, I walked into the forest with and, and stayed for weeks with these people sleeping under the stars in what I called my thousand-star hotel. And uh, the, story, the stories of what happened, why women have chosen to pick up weapons, a lot of the things that, a lot of concerns that I had, you know, about how violence affects, affects women were reversed by these women who I spoke to who, who told me why they had taken to the gun, because they had vigilante groups coming, surrounding villages, burning them at night, raping the women. They had seen all this. And they joined the guerrilla force because of that, as also because of the, the ancient uh, violence that they face from within their own communities. You know, this idea that indigenous people are very, very egalitarian and all that, obviously not true. So it was an incredible, I suppose I, I could say, maybe the, the most remarkable time of my life, walking through that forest and understanding once again the debates which don't just concern human beings, you know, but the earth itself. And, and what is this battle and why is it so important? To me, the reason it's so important is because it's a fight for what is the meaning of civilization. What is the meaning of happiness? What is the meaning of progress? 
maybe it's not what we all are so sure it is. So uh, just another small extract from this. We're moving in single file now, myself and 100 quote-unquote senselessly violent, bloodthirsty insurgents. I looked around at the camp before we left. There are no signs that almost 100 people had camped here, except for some ash where the fire had been. I cannot believe this army. As far as consumption goes, it's more Gandhian than any Gandhian and has a lighter carbon footprint than any climate change evangelist. But for now, it even has a Gandhian approach to sabotage. Before a police vehicle is burnt, for example, it is stripped down and every part cannibalized. The steering wheel is straightened out and made into a barrel for a homemade rifle. The Rexine upholstery stripped and used for ammunition pouches, the battery for solar charging. <clears throat> the new instructions from the high command are that captured vehicles should be buried and not cremated so they can be resurrected when needed. Should I write a play, I wonder? Gandhi, get your gun. <laughs> or will I be lynched? We are walking in pitch darkness and dead silence. I'm the only one using a torch pointed down so that all I see in the circle of light are comrade Kamla's bare heels in her scuffed black slippers, showing me exactly where to put my feet. She's carrying 10 times more weight than I am. Her backpack, a rifle, a huge bag of provisions on her head, one of the large cooking pots and two <clears throat> shoulder bags full of vegetables. The bag on her head is perfectly balanced and she can scramble down slopes and slippery rock pathways without so much as touching it. She's a miracle. It turns out to be a long walk. It's the most wonderful thing walking in the forest at night, and I'll be doing it night after night. So these are the outlines of, 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 of the battles and commentaries and arguments that... that I've been writing about for 20 years, and two major things I've left out, because they're so major that it's hard for me to talk about. I'll just mention them. One is the uh, military occupation of Kashmir, known as the unfinished business of Pakistan. Kashmir is the most dense military occupation in the world today, with half a million Indian soldiers there. Since the 1990s, 70,000 people have been killed. There are unmarked graves, there are disappeared people. Young people, it started off with an, uh, an army battling militants, and now it's an army battling an entire population that has turned militant, because a whole generation of people have, been, have grown up in war. And in India, we only receive propaganda. We only receive lies, and we have to digest those lies and celebrate those lies. And much of the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is about what does that do to a people. So when we are celebrating the supposedly the 70 years of Indian independence this year, and much is written about the violence, the murder, the massacre of a million people during partition, and I often say, what does this word partition mean? Because it suggests that there was a whole, and it was partitioned, and the partition created violence. The truth is, there never was a whole. The, the boundaries of the country that we call India were first marked off by the British Empire. And they contained within them almost 500 princely kingdoms. And the assimilation the forced assimilation, like the assimilation of Kashmir, as well as part, the, the violence was partly partitioned, partly enforced assimilation. And there has not been a day since 1947 when the Indian army has not been deployed within the borders of its own country, killing its own people. And when you look at who those people are, whether it's Manipur, Nagaland, uh, Assam, Punjab, Kashmir, Junagadh, Hyderabad, you see that there's an upper caste Hindu state 
at war against tribals, Christians, Sikhs, Muslims, all the time. So India, a country that was colonized, a country that contributed greatly to the, to the, uh, to the success of the Western world and the economic power of the Western world today, has now con colonized itself. And these wars are being continuously fought. And finally, I come to the subject of caste and to the subject of Gandhi. There's a book I've written about it. It's called The Doctor and the Saint. And I, I, I just leave you after I shock you slightly by the fact that I believe uh, caste is, uh, as I said earlier, the most cruel form of social hierarchy. And um, one of the great intellectuals of modern India is a person that you might not ever have heard about, and that will not be by accident. And his name was Dr. B.R. Ambedkar. He was what in his time used to be called an untouchable. He was a brilliant intellectual, and he was Gandhi's greatest enemy. And The Doctor and the Saint is about the debate between Ambedkar and Gandhi. And, and I, um, in this book, have not interpreted Gandhi, I have quoted Gandhi. From the time he arrived in South Africa until the day he was shot, across his political career. So I'll just, start, I'll just say that what we have been told about this man is a complete lie. He was a brilliant politician. He was a visionary in many ways, and I'm not you know, going to just... Um, uh, I'm not trying to just say that there was nothing wonderful about him. He was a spectacular politician. He had a spectacular sense of political theater. But we, it really, it is time for us to stop this mythology. For example, every one of us is taught, and I'm sure every one of you was taught, that Gandhi's political awakening came in South Africa when he when he was thrown off a whites-only train and then he began to fight against racial segregation. This is not true. Uh, I started looking at Gandhi's uh, writings on caste and then followed him back into South Africa to see where did this bigotry and prejudice come from, you know. Gandhi's first battle in South Africa was to fight for the opening of a third entrance to the Durban post office because he believed that Indians and black people, who we only refer to as savages and kafirs, should not sh share the same entrance. He campaigned continuously for, uh, for separate prisons, for separate food for Indians. When he invented Satyagraha, it was not because he believed in racial equality. He fought with the British in the Boer War. He fought with the British during, against the Zulus during the Zulu uprising and continuously wrote about how upper caste Indians should be considered Aryans and take their place alongside white people. And he was not talking about the lower castes who were indentured labor. And um, he, uh, his Satyagraha began because after the Boer War, the British cordoned off Natal, the province of Natal, and said Indian businessmen should not be allowed to trade there. And the Satyagraha began as a request to the British to allow at least a few Indian businessmen at a time to go and trade in Natal. And when Gandhi left South Africa, he went to Britain, where he was given the Kaiser A. Hind, the highest civilian award by the British Empire for services to the empire. And then he came to India, where he was welcomed warmly by the biggest uh, Indian industrialist, Tata Birla, and then began his confrontation with Ambedkar. I, I can't get into the details of it, but just to say that he did campaign against the idea of the symbolic disrespect shown to untouchables. But he said caste was the genius of Indian civilization. He said people should continue to do their hereditary occupations, as in the untouchables should clean shit, the banyas should do trade, 
the landowners should continue to own their land, but everybody should be respected, which, as you know, is an impossibility. And he continuously fought Ambedkar, who was fighting for the right of untouchables to represent themselves politically. Gandhi always said, I will represent you. And even when he started his, what he called Harijan, which is, a, which is the word he invented for untouchables, as in the children of God, he said they will not represent themselves. So many of us, of course, in India, uh, you know, laugh about the fact that uh, uh, Gandhi had to go to South Africa to discuss, discover injustice, but Ambedkar discovered it in his school classroom where he was made to sit on a sackcloth separate from the rest of his students. And uh, uh, when he got his first job, his footprints would be wiped away because it pollute the upper classes. And today, uh, in The Doctor and the Saint, there are statistics of why and how the caste system continues to function. Less than 5% of Indians will marry outside their caste or community or religion. So... This is, um, this is the story of 20 years of writing. And do you have any questions? <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.